Welcome to the School Psych Podcast, where we are learning brains and growing hearts. I'm your host, Ivana Luki. This podcast is meant to be a resource for caregivers and school staff, or really just anyone interested in the psychology of learning. Before we jump into this week's episode, just a small caveat. Although I work for a local school division, this podcast is a personal project, and it's unaffiliated with said school division. With that being said, let's jump into this week's episode. The last episode was about what a school psych actually does, whether that be universal services, targeted, or intensive services. This time, we're going to be talking a bit more specifically about what kinds of challenges a school psych can actually support students and families and school teams with, because we talked about what services we provide, but now let's get more into the specific domains in which we can provide consultation and service. Right from the get-go, I'm going to address some controversy or some issues related to how psychology tends to practice. Um, Similar to Western medicine, psychologists sometimes get flack for operating within a deficit model, or what we know to be called psychopathology. And I agree. Uh, This is not always the greatest way of looking at and supporting human beings. So I'm going to do my best to talk about the areas in which we support as domains rather than areas of weakness or deficit. We will talk about um, kind of profiles of strengths and weaknesses, but I'm going to try to stay away from just listing a bunch of psychopathologies because human beings are more complicated than those labels. The first area I'm going to talk about is the cognitive domain. Psychologists can do testing with children that give us information about their cognitive skill set. We also might be used to interpret cognitive testing that another psychologist has done with a child in the past so that a school team can understand those results or parents can be reminded of those results and what it means for academic programming or access to supports outside of school. You might know cognitive testing as IQ testing. That's the term that you've maybe heard. Yes, cognitive testing is how we get information about IQ intelligence quotient. But to say that that's the purpose of cognitive testing is way too simplistic. It gives us a lot of other information. IQ is just one number, but cognitive testing can give us information about a child's visual spatial skills or their working memory. That's like their mental um, post-it, so to speak, how much information you can hold at one time and work with it. Um, We could learn about their verbal skills. We can learn about executive functioning. There's lots of different aspects of cognitive testing that we assess. Why do we care about this information? Well, it can be super helpful in helping us understand what kinds of adaptations or accommodations in a classroom that a student might benefit from. For instance, if a student is a visual spatial learner and we just spent mm, 35 minutes talking and not presenting a new concept visually, then that's going to be really hard for that student. And we know that because we know they're, we understand that they have a visual spatial strength. When we have a better understanding about a student's cognitive profile, we're going to try to increase and bolster the number of adaptations that we're using in their classroom or for their learning that 
capitalize on their strengths and their interests. And we're going to try to decrease the amount of information that we're presenting that would be extremely challenging for them given what we know about their cognitive profile. Maybe this is a good time to explain what the word adaptations means, or maybe you hear the word accommodations. I just like to use the word strategies. Strategies could be things that we change about the learning environment or the way that we're presenting information, or they could be strategies that are specifically used by the individual. Like for myself, it's helpful to write myself a short to-do list on my desk or workspace to support my weakness in working memory. Someone next to me might not really need that strategy because they're just able to keep all that information right up there in their brain because they have a larger mental post-it or stronger working memory. In my cognitive profile, that is a struggle, so I use strategies. Many teachers are very skilled at something called differentiated instruction. That is the idea that we have a large group of diverse learners. It's a big range of skills. Teachers are trying their best to plan for that range of skills. Some students have cognitive profiles that support uh, the need or almost requirement for certain kinds of adaptations. For example, if there is a student who has extremely low processing speed or working memory, then we're maybe going to take away the expectation that they're copying off notes from the board and we just hand them the information in a handout that they can review later uh, in their own time or during class. Or maybe we're reducing the number of items for them to complete. Like if there's 27 math questions and they have low processing speed, uh, maybe we're expecting them to do every second item or two-thirds of those. It's going to be case-by-case uh, planning. But the whole point is that these students' brains are working differently, and they can show us what they know um, with some adaptations and with some help. And maybe you don't have to drain all of those cognitive resources because we're not going to get the best out of them if we are forcing them to work against their cognitive strengths and challenges. You might be asking or wondering right now, oh, isn't that a crutch? Aren't we enabling students not to grow? Uh, no. Generally, a cognitive skill set is something that is stable over time. There might be some uh, fluctuations, but for the most part, if it was validly and reliably completed, that skill set is considered stable. So if a student has extremely low verbal skills in grade two, that is likely going to be a lifelong challenge for them. And so if they have a strength in visual spatial skills or in another nonverbal problem-solving area, why would we not provide that opportunity for them to access learning? It's not like, oh, I'm tired today, so I'm having a little trouble with my mental math compared to yesterday. Nope, this is our understanding that a brain is working very differently than the majority of the population, and so we are supporting that child's learning with adaptations and accommodations. Okay, that was a bit of a tangent, but let's go back to the domain of cognition and cognitive testing. Cognitive testing can give us information about whether a child is going to require more significant changes to um, their assignments and to their schoolwork. For instance, students with intellectual disability 
which is now known according to the new DSM manual as intellectual developmental disorder. These are our students who are absolutely going to grow and develop throughout their school years in so many different ways. But when we think about the standard bell curve or our understanding about how the majority of the population is developing, um, the development is going to look different for someone with intellectual disability. And we want to be able to document their growth in a way that's meaningful for them. So if we are trying to compare students against boxes or grades that don't really reflect the growth that they've made in a term or a semester or a school year, um, that doesn't feel very good for that student or for that family. And so we have something called an IEP, Individualized Education Plan. Actually, here in Manitoba, we've recently changed the name of that document. But for, I guess, just global understanding, I think a lot of people know what an IEP is, and that's an individualized education plan. This is where we work with students and with families to document goals that are meaningful for a person and also to record the strategies that are going to be helpful in them achieving those goals. Maybe we'll do a separate episode or find a way to address the big topic that is individualized education planning. It can be confusing for families to navigate all that and what it means short term and long term. So maybe we'll find a way to talk about that more in depth in the future, maybe through an interview episode, because we know a lot of really awesome families with parents who are advocates for their kid and really understand that process. Did I just go on another tangent? Okay, Cognitive testing is how we learn that a student might benefit from an IEP uh, versus adaptations, which are uh, more minor changes. An IEP means significant changes to a child's schoolwork or assignment expectations. We can't be providing an IEP for a child unless we have a really thorough and informed understanding about the way that their brain works functions and that it supports the need for this and that this is something they would benefit from. Okay, I think we can move on from talking about the cognitive domain. I hope it's coming through that this is an area where school psychologists have expertise. We help school teams and parents understand students functioning and how it impacts their academic development, which is the area that we'll talk about next. Part of our role as a school psychologist is to help a school team understand why there might be gaps in certain areas of a child's academic development. We want to help kids understand how they learn, their learning styles, their learning strengths, and then how can we apply that to their growth across subjects. The whole point of psychoeducational assessment is to answer questions. And sometimes that question is, how does a student's cognitive profile impact their strengths and challenges as a learner. So in that assessment, we will do a bunch of testing on different academic skills, like different areas of reading, writing, and math, and oral language. For some students, they have a real strength in math skills, but they are struggling with the literacy piece. And some students, it's the opposite. And then other students might have some struggles across those academics. And we're trying to answer those questions about why. Often we will consult and collaborate with our speech language pathologists when the question involves reading or language because they have a lot of expertise to bring to that conversation. But yes, we do pretty in-depth 
academic testing that compares where students are at compared to a large sample of same age children or children in the same grade. This might be a good time to mention exceptionality or giftedness. There are students who aren't struggling across the board with academics. In fact, maybe their cognitive profile would suggest that they are kind of nailing all of their academic skills and they're performing above grade level. Those are still students that we have to program for in a different way. And guess what? That sounds like a real gift, especially because of the word giftedness, but that can come with its own struggles as well. Students with exceptionality or giftedness might struggle with social skills or with emotionally coping in their life or with mental health. Either way, they're going to require some extra support with adapting their academics to an appropriate level and maybe with some of those other life skills that are just as important as academics. I've already mentioned that in this academic testing, we look at lots of different kinds of skills within that. For instance, in reading, we really break that down into a lot of different aspects of reading, and that helps us understand where the breakdown might be for a student. This is when we learn whether a student meets criteria for a diagnosis of dyslexia or some known it, know it as a learning disorder or a learning disability, but I'll just say dyslexia, of which there are different kinds. We might also conclude that a student meets criteria for a math learning disorder or a specific learning disorder in the area of math, sometimes known as dyscalculia. What do we do with this information? Well, the hope is that we can use this information to inform programming, which is just a term that we use in education that means now we know what to target. So for a student with a very specific kind of dyslexia, why would we have them drain all of their energy and spend all of this time practicing all of those different kinds of skills and repeating and reviewing and practicing and practicing and practicing when the breakdown for them is just in this one specific area. Let's just have them spend time on that. This also brings us back to our conversation about adaptations. So not only do we now have the information we need through academic testing about where a student needs intervention, but also we're going to inform those adaptations that teachers can use. Something that comes to mind is for those students with dyslexia, they have the ability to learn grade level content, but they are struggling to access anything that involves reading. So it, we would maybe have them use some assistive technology like an iPad that can take a picture of written content of a paragraph and then the iPad can read that information to them, or we'll teach them about accessibility features in technology, like how our iPhones can um, read text to us, or we can use our voices to write text. Those are all features that would be unbelievably helpful for someone living with dyslexia, moving through the school system, and then in life. Let's move on from the academic domain. School psychologists can also help in the area of attention and executive functioning. What on earth is executive functioning? This is like our brain's central control system. It's the set of mental skills that help us to get stuff done, to achieve goals, um, to prioritize, to plan, to um, start a task, to keep going on a task, to finish a task, to manage time, to organize. Executive functioning 
impacts so much of what we do in schools and in work. Another aspect of executive functioning is emotional control. This is our ability to recognize our emotions and our emotional impulses and manage them. You might be wondering why I brought up attention and executive functioning at the same time. Well, that's because what we hear of and typically call ADHD is in itself a disorder of executive functioning. It is maybe too simple to think about ADHD as someone who's distracted easily or someone who can't pay attention when really it's a struggle amongst that whole host of executive function that we talked about. You might already know or you might have already guessed based on what we've talked about in this episode so far that school psychologists also know a lot about executive functions and how to support students with ADHD or just Uh, students who have strong executive functions in some areas, but struggle in others. And you best believe that we will definitely be doing a deep dive or several on the topic of ADHD and executive functioning. This is an area I feel very strongly about. It's very close to home, and I'm sure I'll talk more and all about that in a future episode. I think ADHD nicely dovetails into the next domain, which is behavior. Sometimes we think about students with ADHD as being super hyperactive and impulsive and not able to control their behavior. Uh, ADHD might be one reason why a student is presenting with some complex or challenging behavior, but there are a hundred other reasons why. And school psychologists or school social workers, or school counselors. These are going to be some of your support people that you go to as a teacher or as a parent when you're trying to understand the message that a child's behavior is communicating at school. We are always trying to frame behavior in that way. This is not a child just trying to make your day harder as an adult. If this child could succeed, they would be. So we really try to frame behavior as communication, as students sending messages and just not understanding the appropriate ways of how to do that. Some behaviors, of course, are more severe than others, and often school psychologists are a part of these students' school teams, and we help with planning and ongoing um, coming back to what's working and what's not working for the student and trying to understand what's going on for them. This is a great time to talk about trauma. I think probably I've mentioned this topic in a past episode. It's definitely something that we will do a deep dive on in the future. There are so many different kinds of trauma that human beings can experience. We have a lot more information now, thanks to experts like Bruce Perry and Gabor Mate and Bessel van der Kolk. We learn so much about how trauma impacts the brain, and then that impacts how human beings move throughout the world, whether that be a child at school or an adult in their workplace or in a social environment. School psychologists and school social workers will often end up being a member of a student's team who has experienced a significant amount of complex trauma in their past or are maybe continuing to experience ongoing trauma. And our role there, our job, is to help teachers understand how trauma impacts the brain and provide strategies that would be helpful for supporting these students as well as maybe some guidance on things to avoid. 
a quick resource that I wanted to mention that helps to explain what's going on in our brain and in our bodies when we're experiencing some of those big feelings, whether that be from trauma or some other reason, is a book called Big Feelings Come and Go. An agency here in Manitoba called New Directions uh, wrote and published this book. You can Google it. It's a free picture book. So you would find the PDF. There's an audio version of it as well, but it's a wonderful resource for teaching kids how to cope with and move through these big feelings. And it teaches this in a developmentally appropriate way because that's some heavy stuff. Okay, perfect. This is a great time to segue into talking about the next area, which is self-regulation. Regulation is a huge topic. Every single one of the clinical disciplines have something to contribute to this conversation. We have a different lens to bring to regulation. So your speech-language pathologists, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, school social workers, and school psychologists, we all look at this differently and we all consult with each other about how to support kids' regulation. In a nutshell, self-regulation is the ability to monitor and manage your energy states or your emotions, your thoughts, and your behaviors in a way that is um, generally acceptable. And by acceptable, I mean producing positive results in a person's life. We need to regulate ourselves in order to be able to hold down a job or maintain loving relationships or have um, strong mental health or well-being. And guess what? Students need to be regulated enough in order to be ready to learn at school. Moving on from the domain of regulation, but very much still related, is the domain of emotion and mood. School psychologists know a lot about this. We like to talk about feelings. Can you imagine? This is an area where we can support students directly. Maybe we're providing counseling and we're trying to teach them how to identify and understand their emotions and um, figure out what are the best coping mechanisms that work for them. Some students might live with more intense diagnoses like depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder. A part of mental health struggles for some children might be self-harm or self-injury or suicidal ideation. Your school psychologists are trained to assess for um, level of risk when a student is having those kinds of thoughts, as well as help school teams and families to put an immediate safety plan in place, as well as more of a long-term plan for this student. Some students might have mental health needs that are beyond the scope of practice of school psychologists. Um, I've never personally worked with a student who lives with schizophrenia. It's rare that schizophrenia would be presented in a young person, but it does happen. The onset for schizophrenia is often later in life, but this is the kind of mental health disorder that would require a pretty intense wraparound plan, Um, meaning the medical field, um, school personnel, parents, family, maybe a clinical psychologist or a therapist or a psychiatrist. Another mental health challenge that comes to mind that would require some wraparound is addiction, whether that is substance or alcohol. There are lots of different kinds of addiction, and this would require some uh, collaboration between professionals in this student's life and guardians. Another one would be eating disorders. 
such as anorexia nervosa and bulimia. These mental health challenges in their fullest uh, manifestation are quite intense and require a lot of treatment and intervention. School psychologists have background and knowledge in disordered eating, so they can be a member of that student's school team. All I'm saying is that they're not going to be the only person providing consultation uh, in that situation. Okay, I'm pretty sure at the beginning of this episode, I said I wasn't going to just rattle off a list of psychopathologies, um, but the point of mentioning some of these mental health disorders was to demonstrate that often there are many people who would be involved in supporting that person, but also I just didn't want to miss all of the many different aspects of mental health. I think we're getting towards the end. I have a couple more domains that I want to mention. One of those is social skills. We talked a little bit about this throughout the episode, but I just want to almost give this its own domain. There are students with different kinds of diagnoses who would struggle with social skills, but you don't necessarily need to have a diagnosis for this to be an area of challenge. This is another one of those areas of functioning that kind of overlaps different clinical disciplines and also your school counselors would be supporting social skill development. Just wanting to mention that this is an area that school psychologists provide consultation and direct work. Uh, For direct work, we might be doing one-on-one counseling with a student to help them identify some of their goals for how they want to build friendships and what are the skills that they're going to need to do that. Like not everyone just learns through osmosis how to join in play or how to cooperate with others or how to problem solve or how to argue in a way that doesn't permanently damage our friendships. This is kind of a nice segue into one of the last domains. I think I said a couple, but I lied. It was three. So the second last domain is adaptive skills. That basically just means independence with daily life skills. Social skills is actually one of those, our ability to communicate and to get along with others and to sustain relationships. That's a life skill. What are some other life skills? Well, how we get dressed in the morning or how we feed ourselves, how we can use some of our academic skills like writing um, or understanding of numbers to communicate. Like, can we write a note? Can we write an email? These are all daily life skills called adaptive skills. Some other examples of life skills that come to mind are um, what's our understanding of health and safety rules and can we follow them and can we take care of our hygiene? Can we make purchases and get around in the community? This is an area that we sometimes are assessing as a part of our psychological assessments and it's sometimes an area that we're consulting on when we're helping to goal set for students and with students. Okay, the last area I want to talk about is a big deal in school, attendance or engagement with learning. This is an area where we're almost certainly consulting with our school social work colleagues in supporting kids and families. There are so many reasons why a student might be struggling to come to school, from as practical as transportation to something more deep and complex like intergenerational trauma and lack of trust in the school system. School psychologists often might be part of a student's team who is struggling to be at school regularly for whatever reason, and we try to 
understand why that is and make a plan with the school team for how we can improve that for that student, which very much involves engaging the family and having conversations about how we can support the family in getting the student to school more consistently. I told you I was done. I tricked you again because there's one more area that I want to talk about. And it's not necessarily something I would consider a domain of functioning, so to speak. Uh, but I want to talk about identity. Some students from a young age might start questioning the gender or the sex that they were assigned at birth. For some people, this happens later, maybe in middle years or high school or in adulthood. Some students might identify as lesbian or gay or bisexual or transgender. Some students might use the term queer to describe their identity, and other students, specifically our Indigenous students, might identify as two-spirited. There are varying degrees to which students might identify with the 2S LGBTQIA plus community. The point of identity is that it's something that we choose and come to on our own. Hopefully, we have the support of our loved ones when we come to an identity, but some students don't. And so school psychologists or school social workers or counselors can support students directly in deciding how much of that identity they want to share with family or with peers or teachers. School psychologists can also provide consultation for school teams or parents or students who are maybe questioning and uh, whether they want to have a change in identity. Other way that school psychologists can support these students who are unfortunately often marginalized and at risk for negative mental health outcomes is by connecting them to resources in the community or connecting their family to resources, as well as by advocating for them and trying to help schools and school teams create safe spaces and safe communities where these students can exist and be proud of who they are. I am sure there are areas or domains that I have failed to mention, but I hope I provided a somewhat thorough list of the challenges that school psychologists can help with. And remember that there's probably a lot that I didn't mention within these domains that we'll talk about in a future deep dive episode. Like there's so many different kinds of anxiety that are worth talking about in a deeper conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on episode three of the School Psych Podcast. If you listen to me talk about the different domains in which a school psychologist can be helpful and it made you think of your child or your friend or your friend's child or your student that you teach and you thought to yourself, hmm, I wonder if this is a situation in which we should be referring to a school psychologist, but how do you do that? Well, you should listen to episode four because that's what we're going to talk about. If you have any questions or topics of interest you want me to cover, please email the podcast at schoolpsychpodcast at gmail.com. If you find the podcast helpful, please rate and review wherever you listen so others can find it. Thanks for tuning in and catch you next time on the School Psych Podcast.